as we began our study in the Sermon on the Mount last week, we took note of the geography. We took note that Jesus went up a mountain. But mountains for ancient Israelites were spiritually charged places. So this isn't just a passing comment. This is significant. Jesus goes up a mountain, and this would immediately make all of his Israelite followers think of Mount Sinai, think of Moses. Moses went up a mountain, and the glory of God was so fierce that he was the only one who could go up. And on this mountain, Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments and came back down with two tablets of stone. And this was such a significant moment for Israel because this is when they truly became a nation, when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what Matthew wants us to see in his gospel is that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Like Moses, Jesus goes up a mountain. But unlike Moses, Jesus brings the crowd and even his disciples up the mountain with him into the sacred place. He opens his mouth to teach, but he doesn't offer a law that will end up engraved on stone. No, Jesus offers teaching that's not written on tablets of stone, but written on human hearts. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Teaching that's not written on tablets of stone, but written on our hearts. You see, last week I said, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to how do we flourish. And the answer includes, in part, and if not in full, Christ's ability to actually transform our lives from the inside out, not to just hand us high ideals, but to actually dwell richly with us and in us, writing his ways on our hearts so we can actually live them out. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not just some idealistic vision of what life could be like if we were in a utopia. It is a vision of what life is like when you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, even in a fallen world. And But we can only get there, we can only live it out by Christ's ability to write these teachings on our heart and empower us to live them out. We can become, in other words, the people of the Beatitudes. The late Eugene Peterson has this beautiful analogy from the life of Abraham that I think will help us as we approach the Beatitudes over the next nine weeks, these nine blessed are you statements that kick off the Sermon on the Mount. In the time of Abraham, that culture was obsessed with building ziggurats all over the place, these huge towers and monuments to human power and accomplishment and achievement. But Abraham, during this time, he didn't go around building towers. He went around the ancient world digging wells making holes, empty space in the ground. His legacy wasn't this massive monument to his success, but a hole in the ground. But within this hole, if you plumb its depths, you will find water and you will find life. Peterson says the Beatitudes are all wells. Each one is its own well. And at first glance, it looks like a hole in the ground. And compared to our culture's vision of human flourishing, compared to all the ziggurats in our day stacked up around us, what Jesus describes looks like the opposite of a flourishing life. You know, where is the self-sufficiency? Where are the accomplishments, the success, the acclaim, the health, wealth, and prosperity? Where are all our praises? But as we plumb the depths of each of these wells, even in that initial darkness and emptiness, we will inevitably find water. Not only that, we'll find water that wells up within us to eternal life because we will have found the path to true human flourishing. And so the sign over the first well that we're going to explore this morning is this, blessed poor, 
blessed poor. And we're going to look at this in three ways. Who are the blessed poor? Why are they blessed? And how do we become blessed poor? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in two verses this morning. They'll both be on the screen behind me. The first is Isaiah 61, 1, and the second is Matthew 5, 3. And so with Isaiah, long before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth, the Spirit of God filled this prophet Isaiah and gave him a vision of the Messiah to come. And Jesus says in Luke's gospel that I have fulfilled these very words. So listen carefully. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we read in Matthew 5, verse 2 through 3. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's begin with our first point. Who are the blessed poor? Jesus came into the world to proclaim Good news to the poor. And the Beatitudes begin with a congratulations to the poor. That's how we can read the Beatitudes, as descriptions, as congratulations to people who are actually in the kingdom of heaven. So we easily could read congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We could even say flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are to be congratulated because they're actually on the path to true flourishing. But it's strange. The Beatitudes begin with an oxymoron, two contradictory terms. Bittersweet, oxymoron. Deafening silence, oxymoron. Government organization, oxymoron. <laughs> Blessed poor, oxymoron. Blessed poor. That's not who we would typically consider Blessed. The Beatitudes start by flipping our world upside down and calling people blessed that we would normally call unfortunate. And Jesus, he's supposed to come into the world with good news for the poor, but all he offers to them is congratulations. How is that good news? So let's start by asking, well, who are the poor in spirit? Who are the blessed poor? And right away, you might think of the poor, the materially or, uh, or um, economically poor. And in the ancient Greek, there's two words for poor. Uh, one describes the person who very much is poor, but is getting by. They have nothing superfluous in life. They have no extra. They're scraping by. They're economically poor. But that's not the word Jesus uses. He uses the other word, which describes absolute and abject poverty. The person who has nothing at all. Which makes this beatitude even more shocking. Blessed are those who are completely poverty-stricken. Congratulations to the absolutely destitute. And so we have to be careful here. This beatitude is not calling this kind of material poverty good. Jesus is not looking at life in the slums or starvation or inhumane living conditions and saying, blessed. The message of Jesus is never to turn a blind eye to these realities, but to do what we can to alleviate these things, to ignite his followers, to be his hand and feet in this world, addressing these issues of poverty. That's what makes his message good news. But we should never imagine that Jesus is standing back at a distance and fawning over this kind of poverty, saying, blessed. That's not what's happening here. 
God deeply cares for the oppressed and for the impoverished, and he promises to alleviate uh, their injustice and suffering. But nowhere, not once in Scripture does uh, Scripture teach that poverty in itself is a good thing or a blessed state. Nor does the Bible teach that poverty means genuine spirituality. Now, don't get me wrong. Over and over again, the scriptures show us that the conditions of the poor are more likely to help them connect with their need for God than the conditions of the rich. This is true. But poverty does not guarantee true spirituality. Rather, the word poor is meant to inform how we read in spirit. The word poor is meant to inform how we read in spirit. The abject destitution of the utterly poor is meant to inform the sort of spirit Christ is talking about. There's a destitution, a bankruptcy, an emptiness in our innermost being that Jesus calls blessed. And so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To, to say what it's not, Jesus isn't talking about character flaws here. Although the poor in spirit will certainly have Character flaws, this isn't what Christ's referring to. If someone doesn't tip at a restaurant, just shrugs their shoulders and is like, sorry, poor in spirit. No, you're just cheap. You know, if someone cuts in front of you in line or like, whoopsies, poor in spirit. You know, or someone is constantly gossiping and they go, you know, I can't help it, poor in spirit. Like, true, you are poor in spirit. But being poor in spirit opens us up to transformation, not excuse making. It opens us up to true flourishing, not justifying our poor characteristics. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not saying blessed are the mean-spirited. He's not saying blessed are the arrogant or the rude or the weak or those who are, are afraid to even accomplish anything in life. He's not talking about these sort of characteristics. There's a Hebrew word that can help us here, and the word is this, anawim. Let's say it, anawim. Fun, right? It was a group of Israelites throughout the ancient world that were economically poor and disadvantaged. And throughout Israel's history, this group of people constantly had nothing, but in their nothingness, they trusted fully in God. So some of them might have been unclean, and so they couldn't even be in the city, and they are outside of the city, and they had nothing. They were cut off from the life of Israel. They had no friends, no relatives, yet they still trusted fully in God. They still expected God to send his Messiah into the world. These were the characteristics of the Anawim, that even though they had nothing, God would one day redeem them. And I think it's the spirit of the Anawim that Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. People who see their bankruptcy and their nothingness, people who not only recognize their need, but also see that they trust God in that place. You see, the poor in spirit, they sense this burden and this need and this emptiness, but they also see it in terms as an absence of God, that this is happening in them because God is absent to some degree. And so their external conditions, their lack, their need, their poverty only amplifies their interior lives, the state of their souls. There's this hollow space, an emptiness, a poverty of spirit that only God can rectify. This is what Jesus means when he says blessed poor. And in fact, I think this is how we should read Luke's gospel as well. They see a hollow space within themselves, a nothingness which leads them to trust fully in God. As one scholar translates it, blessed is the one who has realized their utter helplessness 
and who has put their whole trust in God. And so Jesus is saying congratulations to the poor in spirit so long as their lack has birthed a profound trust in God. But this brings us to our second point. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? What makes them blessed? Growing up, I had this magnificent tree uh, in my front yard, and I actually found it on Google Maps. How cool is that? So this is the tree in my front house. Apparently, they knocked down my neighbor's house and built that monstrosity. Uh, but this tree growing up, this tree, I can't tell you how many of my childhood memories are stored and located and kept away in secret in this tree. This tree was big enough that I could move around. I could go high. I could go low. I could have a half dozen friends with me. There was even enough room to build a little fort in there. I loved this tree. I remember the first time I went to Cathedral Grove between Nanaimo and Port Alberni. Who's been to Cathedral Grove? It's a beautiful place. Rare and endangered Douglas firs, some that are 800 years old. Some as tall as 250 feet. Some as wide as 30 feet in circumference. Massive, beautiful trees that dwarfed my beloved tree. But there's also these cedars. And some are solid, but others have become hollow. And what's interesting about cedars is that they're prone to decaying from the inside out. Over time, they become these massive hollow trees, big enough that you can go inside of them and explore around, but nonetheless hollow. And some become unhealthy, and they decay, and they collapse. But what's amazing is some remain healthy. Some take deep enough root that they can receive the nutrients of the soil. Some still outstretch their branches so they can receive the gift of the rain from the clouds and from the heavens above. But what I remember as a young boy and what was amazing to me was that this was the first time that I could enter into the very core of a tree. I could go inside its core, its life, and play around in there. The first beatitude makes me think of hollow trees. There is a kind of hollowness that withers up and dies. That's not what Jesus calls blessed. But then there's a type of hollowness that is nevertheless hollow, but lives and flourishes. That's what Jesus calls blessed. The poor in spirit, they know their internal emptiness, their nothingness, their hollowness. And yet this makes space and room for the life of another to come inside. A life outside of their own to come in and play. The blessed poor. The blessed hollow trees. What makes them blessed? They're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The hollowness in them creates space for the kingdom of heaven to come and play. The darkness of that nothingness in them allows the light of the kingdom of heaven to shine forth all the more beautifully. Last week we talked about this, the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what it is? The kingdom of heaven doesn't refer so much as to the place, although it includes that, but to the king. The kingdom of heaven is more about God's reign and rule over people and places than it is about this place far off called heaven. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand because I'm at hand. The king is at present. So everything you see me do is an expression of what it looks like when you're in the kingdom, when you're living under my reign and rule. And it's a beautiful thing. 
It's a beautiful thing because the kingdom of heaven has come to play in the lives of the hollow, in the lives of the people who have enough space to open up and say, I have nothing but you, Lord. And Jesus says, I can work with that. So when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's going to start with you. You're going to start by being transformed yourself and living like a citizen of this kingdom that's yet to come in its fullness on earth and yet is still here mysteriously. You can actually become this person described in the Beatitudes, this person described all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this person with this profound and unreasonable love for others, this person who gives to the world rather than takes from the world, this person who seeks healing and wholeness and wellness in all the relationships around them, loving even their enemies. This is possible when there is enough hollowness in you for the spirit of the living God to come and make room inside of you and live inside of you and play with you. That's why you're blessed. Not because you're poor, but because that poverty has elicited a trust in God and has opened your hands to receive the gift of the kingdom. So finally, how do we become blessed poor? Because you might recall I said last week, these are not if-then statements. If you're poor in spirit, then you get the kingdom of heaven. These are promised declarations. The poor in spirit are blessed because of the promise. They already have the kingdom of heaven. So how then do we become blessed poor? First off, I want to acknowledge very few people intentionally become poor. I've yet to see that listed on any of your life goals. No one has come to me with pastoral need being like, I just need to become poor. I just need counsel on how to give everything away. That'd be beautiful. It's never happened. St. Francis of Assisi read this beatitude as a call to voluntary poverty. And I don't think this is what this passage is about, but I could see why he would read it that way. And there's certainly other passages from Jesus that invites people, specific people, to lay aside all of their earthly possessions for the sake of following him. You might think of Christ's encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus invites him to lay it all aside because it was all in the way of him becoming a disciple. And this was a unique and high calling. And if you look around, it's rare. There's snapshots of it throughout church history and even the world today, but it's rare. Voluntary poverty, it is a gift. It's a gift Jesus offers to some. It's a high calling, but it's not a universal demand in the scriptures or this passage. And you won't become poor in spirit by selling all that you have. You won't. It might help get the exterior conditions better primed so that you can recognize it, but it doesn't guarantee it. It won't get you there. Yet, I think in our culture of self-hype, there's just as much resistance to being poor in spirit as we have to voluntary poverty, right? Like, po voluntary poverty. Love to talk about Francis of Assisi. Don't want to be him. But I think we resist poor in spirit just as much. Because in our culture, there's this huge emphasis on self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression. If you want the world, believe in yourself. You're not hollow or empty or nothing. You're everything. All things are possible for you. You only need to set your mind to it, baby. This is the antithesis to poor in spirit. I'd almost go as far as to say it's blasphemy. 
And should we not recognize this? Should we not repent, meaning shift our minds, see the world the way Christ sees it? We will never become blessed poor because we'll be living for the hype of the self. So how do we get there? How do we become blessed poor? I love the way Eugene Peterson does this. He says, we should consider how we are naturally poor as humans in our birth and in our death. When you're born, you're poor. You possess nothing, and therefore you receive everything as a gift, a nipple, a warm blanket, hugs and cuddles and kisses and clothing and a home and family, a name. It's all given to you. You just receive and receive and receive. You're poor. And so you're receiving life as a gift. But then if you die, you all die, but if you die of natural causes, let's say, and life is slowly stripped away from you, you're slowly reduced back down to this fundamental poverty. You can either resist that process, and that's a thing to grieve, but also in that process, there can be profound gratitude because you start reflecting upon the gift of life, how everything you received throughout life, your family, your friends, the things you saw and did, even the hurt and the heartache you had to go through, it was all a gift upon gift upon gift. And of course, that's what we're trying to do in this Lenten season, isn't it? From dust you came to dust you shall return. When we reflect upon our impending deaths, we see we're poor. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And so if we want to become poor in spirit, we can start by trying to see ourselves rightly. That's a step towards becoming blessed poor. We can contemplate our births, our inevitable deaths, and that'll help us see our nature as poor. If we strip away all of the hype and connect with this, we can actually return to a posture of receiving all things as a gift. And so we can connect with our nothingness, not as something to mask, not as something to hide. This hollowness isn't something to be ashamed of or something to be overcome through accomplishments and possessions. No, this hollowness, this emptiness, this nothingness is a beautiful space because it's an invitation to open your hands and receive. And this is a step toward the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom of heaven can never be earned. It's always received as a gift. And seeing ourselves in this light helps us get to the posture of the poor in spirit. But it doesn't get us all the way there. We're only three quarters of the way down the well of this beatitude. We can still go deeper into the emptiness of this well and find something more substantial that is the result of becoming poor in spirit. Because you can't muster it up. I hate to break it to you, you can't. You can't just walk around and be like, yeah, I'm poor in spirit. It's not going to cut it. You can't try to persuade yourself of it. You won't get there. So how do you become poor in spirit? It's a response to God's glory and God's humility. God's glory and God's humility. We should think of the prophet Isaiah, who's constantly in the background of the Beatitudes. And in the beginning of his book, in chapter 6, Isaiah recounts this profound vision he had of God. He got to see the throne room of the king, and it almost defies words. And suddenly, Isaiah has a fresh perspective of himself. He cries out, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king of glory. 
The Apostle Peter has a similar encounter with Jesus. Jesus performs a miracle and it just unnerves Peter. He cries out, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. When we see God in his glory, we see ourselves rightly. When we see him in his substance, we see our nothingness. And this might happen today through a spiritual encounter. You might have a profound realization, a revelation of the glory of God, and then you see your poverty of spirit. But I can guarantee you one way you can always find it. Gaze upon his word prayerfully. Study and see the nature of our God and his glory and his holiness and his goodness and you will see your own poverty. God's glory elicits our poverty of spirit. But we can have the same experience, surprisingly, by encountering God's humility. St. Angela of the 13th century was widely known for being a mystic because of these revelations she would have of Christ. And in one, she speaks of the many ways Christ became poor. Jesus was poor in respect to things, he had no house, land, or money. He was poor in respect to relationships. He had to leave his family behind. He was misunderstood by his brothers and sisters. All of his disciples betrayed him in the last minute. People hated him. But he was also poor in respect to himself. And this is the shocking part. He was poor in respect to himself. This is how St. Paul puts it. Although he was in the form of God, which you could read as because he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the humility of the God of glory. The God who is so glorious that we should be shaking in our boots is so humble that he might become one of us and conceal his profound glory within human flesh. And not just do that, but even go all the way to the point of being a servant, coming not to be served, although he should be, but serving us. Coming not to live, but to die. So that through his poverty, we might become rich, we might become truly alive. You see, when you gaze upon the humility of Christ, you suddenly see a way of being human that is beyond your own reach. None of us have ever lived up to his example. And so your poverty of spirit is once again revealed. Because you know, even if you want to emulate his ways, even if you want to model his humility, even if you want to try to be the sort of person that's like that, without his help, without his strength in you, you'll never get there. Blessed are you if you realize that. Because now you can trust in him to do it. You see, the bedrock of the kingdom of heaven is not possessions. It's poverty. That's an absolute sense of futility. I can't even begin to do it. I can't stand in his glory. I can't emulate his humility. But what makes our nothingness or our hollowness blessed before God is not the empty space or even just the awareness of our lack. When we reach the bottom of the well of this beatitude, when we draw from its waters, it is the waters of trust. We discover trust. It's in trusting Christ in that empty space, opening our hands to receive 
the gift of life, to receive the gift of his, the Son, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is when Jesus says, blessed are you, congratulations to the poor in spirit, because you've received the kingdom of heaven, having nothing to offer and receiving everything. And I hope you see it as a joyful and it's an exhilarating blessedness. As Isaiah went on to say later in his ministry, Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. No wonder the Beatitudes are congratulations, people. God himself has come to live in our hollowness. Blessed are the hollow trees because the king has come to play. If I don't get an amen, I'm just going to keep going. Thank you. This is the taste of the water of the well of the first beatitude. Trust. In your nothingness, in your emptiness, in your hollowness, trust. That the king has come to play in that space. To lead you onto the path of true flourishing and give you life. And this is so beautifully captured by the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Finally and quickly, there's a unique beauty to hollow trees, isn't there? And there's a unique beauty to the blessed poor. When you see it, it might be odd, it might be a peculiar beauty, but it's beautiful nonetheless. And we have to remember with every beatitude, the next thing Jesus goes on to after the beatitudes is that you're meant to be lights in the world. The blessed poor are meant to shine as lights in the world. This is a peculiar sort of blessedness that is for the sake of the world because you can show the watching world that this is what true flourishing looks like in our hollowness, in our nothingness. God is with us. God is at work. God is bringing life. God is bringing his kingdom and there's nothing I can do but open my hands and receive it like I received life and like I'll receive death and like I'll receive eternal life. Because the well of trust is springing up in us to eternal life, and we get to start living it now.